Republicans party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Um, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. I very much appreciate the listeners who support this program. I've got a stalker in Texas, Janice Stalker of Nolanville, Texas, made a, a, an unusual amount contribution. Thank you very much, Janice. Also, Mike Gill of North Little Rock and Timothy McKay, all regular contributors to the Peter B. Collins Show. You can help, too. Just log on to PeterBCollins.com and click on the tab that says You Can Help. Later in this program, online animated political cartoonist Mark Fiore will join us. His cartoons now on the homepage at PeterBCollins.com. But first, we have a world-class volunteer foreign correspondent who joins us, not from London, I'm sorry, the clash never did, Edinburgh Calling, but David Coates is a professor of political science at Wake Forest University. I met him a couple of years ago at one of the Take Back America conferences in Washington, D.C. His newest book is the paperback edition, Answering Back, Liberal Responses to Conservative Arguments. And I contacted David to talk with him about the book. He's agreed to do that. But in the meantime, he said, well, I'm off to Scotland and England, and he volunteered to file this report. So, David, welcome to our program. It's great to talk with you again. It's great to talk to you. And uh, first, a little scene setter. Uh, Springtime in Scotland? (laughs) No, not at all, actually. Snowing very heavily. It's very cold. And they do snow here with enormous winds. So it's very warm in this hotel room, but not outside. And do you have a single malt to get you through the night? (laughs) Yes, a little of that does go down here. (laughs) (laughs) We drink in Scotland. That's that's one of my favorite uh, aspects of Scottish culture, is the uh, the whiskies. Indeed. Yes. Well, uh, David, first up, the uh, top story really in the U.K. these days is the upcoming election. And uh, Gordon Brown, of course, succeeded uh, Tony Blair. He's a bland uh, former chancellor of the Exchequer. That's roughly the equivalent of our Treasury Secretary. And um, he's, he's got some rough going, according to the polls. It looks like the Labor Party could be facing the end of 13 years of uninterrupted rule. And uh, first, though, give us, a, if you would, as a political science professor... Just a quick sketch of how elections work in the U.K., because it's very different than our system. It is. The, the elections here are very short, actually, officially only six weeks long at maximum, and they haven't called the election yet, because when they do, 
then they immediately come under very tight spending limits. They can only spend, I think, about £20 million from start to finish. And the media coverage has to be balanced. Every time you have one party representative on, you have to have all three of the main ones, even four sometimes. Yes. So it hasn't quite started yet, but they are lining up to begin next week, I think, with an election due on May the 6th. And as you said, it's quite likely that the Labour Party will lose power after, as you said, 13 years. Now, um, I, I do like the idea of the quick election, but the idea that the uh, incumbent gets to pick the date seems a little one-sided, a little loaded. Yes, it, well, this is a political system, one of the most uh, weakly balanced democracies in in the Western world. I mean, the, the prime minister here has enormous control over the whole uh, business of politics from the start to the finish of the five-year term. And for that reason, normally does very well. But by the same token, there's a lot at stake in this election. Whoever becomes prime minister does pull to himself or herself considerable political leverage, much mm-hmm. more than a president, really. The president looks more glamorous, but has got to deal with Congress. Here, a prime minister in control of parliament is really very much a free agent. And so what are the uh, primary issues that Gordon Brown is running on, and what uh, is his opponent jabbing him with? Well, we'd recognize them. They're the same ones, really. The the financial crisis hit the United Kingdom just as heavily as it hit us in the United States. And foreclosures on how homes are uh, are up dramatically. The banking system, of course, was in jeopardy. Uh, Unemployment suddenly spiked. Uh, And that's really why New Labour is in trouble, I think. Uh, Here, you know, politicians in power are normally returned to power if the economy is doing well. When the economy is not doing well, they claimed responsibility for its prosperity, so they must pay the price for its downturn. And I think that's what Cameron's jabbing him with. He's saying, look, you know, you've made a terrible mess of the economy. You were supposed to be this iron chancellor who solved the problem of boom and bust, and look, we're in this terrible condition, so it's time for you to go. And uh, how conservative is David Cameron? Is he uh, on the Tea Party extreme, if you would, uh, in, in Britain, where the answer to every problem is to cut taxes and smaller government, the, the Thatcher approach? No, he's, he's not a Thatcherite. I mean, I, I laugh because, of course, you would think that it would be in the UK that you would have a Tea Party movement, given the local delicacy here, yes. the tea. But in fact, he's a very... Uh, centrist conservative. He's had to move his conservative party back into territory that was once Tony Blair's. And though he is prepared, and indeed they all are now, I think, to consider cutting government spending because the tax revenues are down, he's he's definitely not a Thatcherite. And that's one of the difficulties he's had inside his own party, that the section of the base of his party consider him too liberal in American terms. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the issues that I see, and of course I'm not an expert on Britain, I've traveled there many times, I have a brother who lives in London, so you know I read the papers when I'm there, uh, but it strikes me that cutting spending in Britain has a much more direct impact on the economy because there is so much uh, government sector spending uh, that, that uh, is, is the mainstay of the economy. So uh, won't that inevitably lead to unemployment and further recession? Yes, I mean, yes, you're right. And yes, the danger is that it might. And I think they're they're very worried that they move too quickly. They'll get what they call a a double dip. They've just come out of recession. That's growth rate of about 0.4% in the last quarter of 2009. But since public spending was the thing that produced that 
uh, improvement, particularly the kind of stimulus package of the kind we also had last February, uh, there is a genuine fear amongst uh, people who commentate on these things here in the United Kingdom that if the Conservatives come in and do live up to all their promises and cut quickly, then in fact they might find they make a bad situation worse. My sense is that there's a normally a significant gap between what's said before an election and what's done after it, and I think we'll probably see that again. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, David Coates, Professor. Uh, you use the term new labor, and I think it's important for people to understand that uh, in, in a rough equivalence that Tony Blair redefined the Labor Party as a centrist pro-business party in much the way that Bill Clinton redefined the Democratic Party as a new Democrat, the uh, 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 Democratic Council, what's it, was CD, the, what was that called? <laughs> the centrist group... Uh, yes. That, that he was a part of. I'm sorry, I'm blocking on the acronym right now. Uh, but uh, give us a rough comparison there. Has labor moved to the center or even uh, to the left of its base in a way that is hard for Gordon Brown to uh, recalibrate? Well, they certainly reposition themselves, just as you said. Bill Clinton's triangulation strategies were very influential. When New Labour came in in 1997, Bill Clinton had been in office over four years. He was definitely the reference point. Some of the individual policies that he initiated, like earned income tax credits and so on, they simply took on board as their own. And it was an attempt to kind of move away from the older left-wing style uh, of Labour politics that was tied very closely to trade unions and what here would be called the Labour movement. Now, that worked electorally. They thought it would work just a little. In fact, it produced an incredible landslide. They suddenly found themselves in power in 1997 with a parliamentary majority of 179 in the House of 650 members of parliament. They had anticipated having a majority of two or three. That opened up for them a decade in which they could follow through on their Clinton-type program, Mm -hmm. and that worked just great, but it's until the financial crisis, because what it did involve, really, was deregulating business as extensively as possible, including the financial sector, while pursuing programs of social reform in a discreet and careful fashion. I mean, they certainly have worked very hard to get rid of child poverty. They've certainly done some pretty impressive things in relation to work-life balance that we don't handle so well in the United States. But it all came badly unstuck, of course, when it was a deregulated financial sector that produced the nightmare of September 2008, and everything, everything here then went into reverse. Unemployment went up. Mm -hmm. Inflation, in fact, went up a little bit. House prices, which had been soaring, collapsed and so on. And the debt-based nature of the strategy that they had been living off for the last decade was actually fully exposed. They had a very Clinton-esque, and I think we are seeing the coming really to the close of this new Democrat, mm-hmm. new Labour phase, where you're deregulating business as your first move. DLC were the uh, trick letters we were looking they for were. there, the Democratic the, Leadership the Council. Leadership Council. Uh, but, but one of the things, and, and again, uh, I claim no expertise just reading the papers and following things, uh, one difference is that the government of Gordon Brown uh, took over the faulty financial institution Northern Rock, they pumped money into it, but they actually nationalized it. And uh, we now hear that uh, the Treasury Department here in the U.S. is ready to flip its shares in Citibank, and uh, they're warning people that this is going to happen. They're claiming they're going to make a, a 7 or $8 billion profit on the transaction. 
I was one of those people who said, look, you know, on the day that we pumped all that money into Citibank, its uh, market capitalization was around $25 billion. We own the damn thing. Yet we didn't take uh, control or possession of it. And I'm just curious how the Northern Rock bailout and nationalization uh, is viewed by, uh, say, the average voter in Britain, to the extent you know, David. Well, different, I know. My sense is they see it not dis- in not dissimilar terms to you, I think, as a, as a missed opportunity. There's an incredibly fine piece in the London Guardian this morning by Seamus Milne making that very point, that in fact here, organizationally and politically, they went further. They took Northern Rock, as you say. They actually partially publicly uh, owned, nationalized two of the three major banks, the Royal Bank of Scotland and the Lloyds uh, Network that takes in uh, Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank. Mm -hmm. So these are big, big players in the city. Uh, And then the expectation was that they would be told, A, to alter their mortgage uh, practices immediately to, to protect uh, small and medium-sized enterprises when they came for investment purposes, and to cut the bonuses. New Labour was very slow to do that for fear that the banks would up and go to, to Frankfurt and this fight between London and, and Germany for control of the European financial system would move away from London. And in fact, New Labour was in terms of the policies it imposed on the banks, very, very cautious. And mm-hmm. that is now widely resented because bank bonuses are back and unemployment is back. You know, and people are here are battling with their own personal finances and seeing their jobs taken away. And yet the government, this Labour government, owns the banks. So mm-hmm. I think they've made a real mess of it, actually. And I think that's one of the reasons why they will not only will go, but probably should go from power mm-hmm. in, in May because they had the chance and they didn't take it. And, David, where is Fleet Street uh, on this election? Uh, Are the newspaper barons uh, backing the Conservatives? There's been a shift, I think. I mean, I don't think in London it feels as partisan a a media uh, system as it does with us, though in truth it probably is. Uh, Sky and The Times, Fox News equivalents and so on are certainly in play here. But there's a very strong liberal press, uh, uh, and that's uh, available to anybody who wants to go for it, you know. And, of course, the BBC is there always as this balancing act in the middle. So you can get pretty high-quality, fairly well-informed and balanced news information if you want, Mm -hmm. and I think most people do want. So, in fact, we end up with a slightly less uh, radicalized and polarized electorate than we're currently dealing with back home. And what about the scandal scoreboard? Because uh, in Britain, you know, again, from my armchair, it appears that, you know, they lurch from one scandal to the next. Um, Who is cleaner at the moment, Gordon Brown or George Cameron? (laughs) Well, the Cameron is cleaner, amazingly, uh, for for two reasons, I think. I mean, one is that when the last little stunt, which we can talk about if you like, was set up, you know, when the MPs were tempted to sell their services, a very clever research assistant in the Conservative Central Office smelt a rat and sent an email around to all the MPs telling them not to t- go anywhere near it. So lots of t- Conservative MPs that were not sucked into that particular one. But also because, in fact, there lots of them are effectively lobbyists for companies anyway. Uh, but the political class here, as, I mean, as you know, uh, has been through a terrific scandal on their own expenses. They've all been charging for houses. that They normally have two houses, but they've been putting in pretty excessive expense account claims that has really made people in here furious with politics in general and that of course never helps the government in power and it certainly never helps governments of the center left because Mm -hmm. they're the ones who are saying let's use politics to make things 
better. And if people get into that frame of mind of thinking that politicians are only in it for their own personal gain, then the whole thing loses legitimacy. And I think for the minute we're in one of those downturns in Britain where the scandals are high and the public support for politics is low. Mm -hmm. We had one at the end of the Thatcher years, and we look like we're having one now. Any sex scandals, any rent boy scandals uh, underway right now? <laughs> no, no I, I mean, you can, this is an awful thing to say, uh, probably an exaggeration, but it seems you can, you can buy influence in Britain very cheaply, and, and these members of parliament were not asking huge amounts of money, but they were prepared to put your questions for you in the House. I don't, unless I've missed it, no sex scandals this time, just old-fashioned graft, I think. Uh-huh, very interesting. But dollar, of course, for that reason, Yeah. yeah. And the current polling, it seems there uh, the, that Labour has actually improved its standing a little bit and within a couple of points of uh, the Conservative candidate. Until yesterday, actually, when oh. the, uh, the latest pair just widened a little bit again, but it's about five to seven points, close enough to make people think that what we're going to have is a hung parliament. We might even be in a position where the Conservatives win more popular votes, but the Labour Party has more seats because of the way that their vote is distributed geographically, and we, in that sense, a reverse of our 2000 election little debacle. Mm -hmm. uh, but, they all, but all the people here in Edinburgh who I'm talking to are convinced that David Cameron will be the next Prime Minister, that the Conservatives will have enough of a, an edge on Labour in the end, probably to be a minority government, but nonetheless to be the government. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And, and finally on this, uh, David, the New York Times' John Burns reports that the Saatchi brothers have come in from uh, the sidelines and Maurice and Charles are backing Cameron and are now advising him. These guys uh, built one of the biggest ad, ad agency empires uh, during the 1990s and presumably are comfortably retired collecting art. Yes, and in fact, we're very supportive, weren't they? Margaret Thatcher played a very important role in her rise mm -hmm. to dominance, I think. No, I think David Cameron is pulling people to him. I mean, he's a rising star. Labour look like they're going down. Lots of people are jumping on board, I think. Uh, but he does seem to need all the help he can get because he's a bit of an unknown character and his policies are not very clearly specified yet. And this is an electorate which in the next six weeks is going to ask some pretty hard questions about what were you actually going to do. Mm -hmm. And the man who's coming through as the impressive one is somebody that the New York Times had a piece on the other week, Vince Cable, who's the Chancellor of the, Czech, of the Exchequer equivalent, or at least a shadow of that office, for the third party, the Liberal Party, and they normally get squeezed out, but this time, that because of him, they may not. And that'll be what makes a, the thing hang, as it were. There'll be some negotiation between the Conservatives and these third parties. And we'll go into a situation, not unlike Iraq, where you're having to wait a while to find out who's actually going to be the government. Yeah, very interesting. Now, one of the other things that has uh, gotten some coverage in the American media is the Chilcot Inquiry into uh, Britain's involvement in Bush's war in Iraq. And uh, it's been pretty interesting because it's been rather public. Uh, Tony Blair did make an appearance there and offer some highly defensive comments from what I've read. Uh, what is the status of that inquiry? And is it true that they're trying to uh, negotiate with George W. Bush to come and tell his story? The status of it is that for the moment it's on hold. It's now officially been, I think, paused until after the general election. It, it is a public inquiry. It began in November. There have been two or three private inquiries, the, the reports of which have been published in the UK, as indeed in, in Washington. Uh, so there was a Hutton inquiry and there was a Butler inquiry. And this man, Chilcott, was on both of those. But they've now given him his own inquiries. 
they didn't initially want to make it public, but there was such pressure here that it eventually became public. And it's provided some theatre, an important theatre. People have come, Blair came, lots of other people, m- m- more minor players in the story, if you like, mm-hmm. Uh, have come before the inquiry and said, no, it's not, this, it's not as Tony Blair is saying. I mean, there's been almost a kind of you know, clearing of the decks. So people who actually had to hold their tongue when Tony Blair was saying that, that he hadn't made up his mind in 2002 to go to war. Um, th- these senior diplomats are coming before the inquiry and saying, in their, in their, on the, in their judgment, he had already made that decision you know, long, long mm-hmm. before um, the, um, the UN resolution was lost. And, and how do they refer to what we call over here the Downing Street Memos? Uh, I believe it was Sir David Manning who uh, was the U.S. ambassador, or the, the British ambassador That's to it. the U.S., yeah. and a confidant of uh, Tony Blair's, who uh, I, I believe he was the author of the memos we call the Downing Street Memos, which said that the um, intelligence is being fixed around a predetermined policy uh, to attack Iraq. Well, the- that, that particular move produced a white paper. The, the characteristic way they do it over here is to uh, produce a government paper, which is then published and is discussed in the House of Commons. And the white paper that was explaining why we were thinking of, well, why a second resolution was being demanded, um, came out in September 2002. And the accusation was that the information in there was sexed up. Uh, that's how it's discussed here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, one of the things it said was that uh, uh, Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction that could be deployed within 45 minutes, minor nuclear weapons that he could deploy within 45 minutes. There was a huge amount of fuss of that about that at the time. Tony Blair made a lot of play of it. It turned out, of course, to be a completely exaggerated element in the report, and it was understood as such at the time. So one of the questions that... Uh, the inquiry now is, is probing is, you know, was the data actually cooked? And, of course, the main players are saying no, but all the minor players are implying that to some degree it was. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing they were saying, was it legal? And I don't know whether you want to go on to discuss that, but the legality of this thing is really important to the British. Um, and there's, there was, it was important at the time, and that's important now. And there's, that part of what the Chilcot inquiry has to come to a clear judgment on was whether... Tony Blair went to war claiming it was a legal move when, in fact, he knew it wasn't. Yeah. Well, uh, as I mentioned to you before we started this uh, recorded conversation, David, I'm only jealous that uh, because the Obama administration, in my view, is obstructing justice by failing to permit accountability for what I consider to be clear wrongdoing uh, under Bush and Cheney, uh, some of which Cheney has publicly admitted, especially uh, related to torture. Uh, but the uh, you know pre-war uh, intel is just kind of sloughed off here in the United States as if, well, yeah, you know, they got it wrong, so it's just government. Government never gets anything right. When I believe it was a very conscious effort, uh, and uh, as uh, former, the, the very first Bush Treasury Secretary, John Snow, uh, blurted out in a, in a memoir published, uh, I think, in 02 or 03, uh, the very first cabinet meeting, in uh, late January of 2001, it was articulated that uh, they had plans to attack Iraq. So, uh, you know, I, I, again, think that the Chilcot Inquiry is a good model for the United States. I would prefer uh, a legal investigation with uh, criminal consequences, but it's clear that's not going to happen. I just don't think that it's optional for Uh, the sitting president to say, well, we don't need to investigate anything that happened before I got here. 
And so it, it's uh, in some ways uh, uh, satisfying for me to see that Britain does care uh, about whether it violated international law and uh, its uh, U.N. agreements by participating in the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Yes, I think Obama has made a number of mistakes, and that's clearly one of them. I mean, as far, I think, as the players are concerned at our end, I mean, Congress had authorized uh, the removal of Saddam Hussein's regime, of course, during the Clinton years, and and no action would be taken on it. But it didn't legitimate all the methods that were used and the torture that was deployed and so on, which they're now admitting. I don't know how much of the torture dimension is going to figure in this Chilcot inquiry, though the British are conscious that their ministers at least condone some of that. Mm-hmm. And if, in fact, Labour lose, and therefore you're talking about ex-ministers, which is more than likely, then maybe the Chilcot inquiry will widen its brief to take that in as well. Mm-hmm. But normally, the UK is a more secretive governmental uh, system than ours. But oddly enough, on this one, it's, got, it's the other way around, and it is very, very useful. I would urge everybody to keep an eye on the Chilcot inquiry when it kicks in again, I think, in late May. Uh, there's more There's more to come, for sure. I think mm-hmm. it should all demonstrate, I think, that this was an absolutely predetermined exercise from day one, where people were simply looking for an excuse to do something they'd already settled on doing. Mm-hmm. And whether, the only issue for Tony Blair is whether he knew about that and he's there for a knave, or he didn't know about that, or he's a fool. But one way or the other, you know, he, got, he drew the UK into it. And his credibility in the UK was permanently, irreparably shattered by that decision. Yeah. Very interesting. David, anything you'd like to add, just your observations of things going on in the U.K. right now that we may not be aware of here in the States? No, my, my sense is now that we're, we are definitely into election mode here, and it, it then takes over. Uh, and uh, the one new dimension that's crept in today that we ought to think about, too, is, a, is the fear that people have that in, uh, people coming from outside the European Union will take their jobs. So suddenly the conversation on immigration has taken a right-wing turn here mm-hmm. uh, because there's all the European immigration within the European Union from Eastern Europe. And uh, even Tone, uh, Gordon Brown was today speaking about uh, their determination not to let unskilled workers from outside the European Union into the UK. Immigration reform at home is such an important issue and one very dear to my heart that I got very depressed this morning when I watched all these politicians dancing around promising that they would push the costs of our recession, the one they'd allowed the bankers to orchestrate, onto the poorest of the poor, which is effectively what this, this will do. But it does look as though for the moment, in the UK at least, immigration politics is hardening and moving to the right. Yeah. And uh, I just hope that's not... Well, we see, we're seeing it, of course, at home, but it's something we have to fight against very hard, I think. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Well, David, thank you again for uh, being our correspondent here. It's fascinating to catch up, and uh, we will have a little more interest now in the elections coming up in early May. And when you're back stateside, uh, drop me an email, and we'll set up a time when we can talk about answering back and uh, get your views on the uh, first year or so of the Obama administration. Okay, thank you very much. It's been terrific fun. David Coates from Wake Forest University, where he's in the Department of Political Science and live from uh, Edinburgh here on the Peter B. Collins Show. And the Peter B. Collins Show continues, sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Try the fine, earth-friendly wines imported by the Organic Wine Company since 1980. Just click on the link on my homepage at peterbcollins.com for a special introductory offer for you, the listeners of the Peter B. Collins Show. Well, joining me at my secret studio today, and he has promised not to divulge the location, 
is the very talented political cartoonist who produces weekly animations on current events, Mark Fiore. Hello, Mark. Hello, Peter. How you Lean doing? on in there so people can hear closer. you. There These are go. sensitive microphones so that, uh, as I explained to you, that bus going better. by doesn't make quite as much noise. The mystery bus. That we First, I want to thank you because uh, you gave me permission to post the Mark Fiore animations on my homepage. And we've been getting terrific response. That's uh, good to hear. I enjoy it because you're funny, uh, but you're also uh, very topical, and uh, you're a pretty progressive kind of guy. <laughs> Some might say crazy lefty. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. But it depends on the issue. Like mm-hmm. this week's cartoon was not so left necessarily. Yeah. I haven't I haven't previewed uh, this this week's cartoon. It's probably the closest to Nancy Reagan I've ever come. Uh-oh. Well, let's get right into it then, and we'll we'll talk about it. Uh, you can get the cartoons uh, fresh as soon as they're released at markfiori.com. And a week later, uh, when I post them, and I don't always get right around to them, you can see them on the homepage at peterbcollins.com. And we do break the rules here of an audio podcast, uh, just like we did on radio a few years ago, uh, by playing things that require visuals. But I do find that your audio tracks uh, usually explain things pretty well. So we have a guy uh, smoking something in the opening scene here. Let's see what happens as we load the animation and uh, see see what uh, plays here. Here we go. Are you tired of following all the rules? Ready to let loose? Have a little fun? Sounds like you need to. Get high. And with Narcomex Incorporated, your direct-to-consumer drug trafficking solution, you can. Narcomex values your business. That's why we're your number one supplier of drugs, and you're our number one consumer. These billions can't be wrong. We work hard for your business and have killed not one, not two, but three Mexican police and two journalists just to keep you high with that very joint. Why, our commitment to keeping you supplied has killed over 17,000 people. People right next door. Traffickers, soldiers, journalists, prosecutors, you name it. We're that passionate about your business. We've even begun to destroy some of your favorite tropical beach destinations. Because if you smoke enough at home, you don't even need a beach. But don't <laughs> legalize it or grow it at home. Let us do the work for you. Sure, consumers boycotted evil companies, but there's no need to boycott Narcomex Incorporated, your direct-to-consumer drug trafficking solution. Also Offering heroin, meth, and cocaine. Narcomex Incorporated. Live a little and forget others won't. And then here so. comes the Mark Fiore signature at the end. <laughs> the audio signature now. <laughs> well, so what's what's wrong with this one? Well, this one, the um, the the issue that really got me going, you know, besides hearing continual reports about people getting killed and that kind of thing, which right. is, you know, not that unusual for a political cartoonist, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, the issue with this is that, that I started to think of the whole boycott idea. Like if this was if this was bottled water or right. soda or something that was coming from Mexico and happened to kill people, mm-hmm. we would have had boycotts long ago. But you don't really hear, you know, the traditional, you know, quote unquote left right. and people that would normally support that uh, doing it. Mm-hmm. So nobody's really, you know, as much as I said, you know, I don't want to be the next Nancy Reagan. It's, right. you know, it's kind of ridiculous, I think, anyway. You know, if you want to smoke pot, grow it at home or, you know, get it, get it locally sourced. But the, uh, you know, there's just so much awful stuff going on down there. It's starting to ruin the country. Yeah. 
Well, uh, and what you're describing there just brings back an interview we did last year with a guy named Chuck Bowden. Mm -hmm. Chuck lives uh, about three miles from the Mexican border in Arizona, Mm -hmm. and he's a very talented journalist. He writes for Mother Jones and many other publications. Mm -hmm. And in a three-minute sequence, he summed it up very succinctly, that Mexico would crumble without Mm -hmm. the money that it gets from the illicit drug trade. Yeah. And that uh, NAFTA, you know, doesn't put a dent in terms of, uh, you know, what the Mexican economy requires and, uh, you know, the, the imbalance of trade with its northern neighbor. Uh, I think you make a good point here. The problem is that, at least in California, mm-hmm. uh, I haven't, and I know some people who smoke pot. Of course, I I've couldn't. I've heard of them. I, yeah, I, I, and I used to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do occasionally smoke marijuana, and uh, it's all grown locally. Some, mm-hmm. some in people's homes uh, who have the uh, medicinal cultivation permits, sure, yeah. and uh, others in Humboldt County or uh, other sunny parts of California. Mm -hmm. So it would be very easy for me to pledge to never, ever, ever buy Mexican pot again. And besides, it's shitty. It's not, exactly. It's (laughs) not the same. It's not the same. But the the thing that really pisses me off about this whole issue is when you see, you go down to Mexico and you see, you know, obviously the poverty and things like that. There's Mm -hmm. so much amazing, great stuff in Mexico. And some of those other sectors of the economy are starting to get hammered because people are getting too afraid to go down. I mean, to give you an example, I used to go down there a lot, down to Baja with some buddies and go surfing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you don't want to go down through that area where we used to go anymore. Right. You know, and there's definitely a hit on the tourism side. And that's naturally just going to drive more people to the drug side. Mm -hmm. You know, you need to make money somehow. Yeah. Well, and it has spun wildly out of control, and I don't pretend to know what the solution is. The Mexican government is deeply corrupt. Uh, The justice system there is riddled with corruption, and even if you uh, are convicted of a drug crime and locked up, uh, your friends can bring you not only breakfast, lunch, and sure. dinner, but all the comforts of life to your prison cell. Exactly. There's there's some crazy stories about the prisons down there and people, you know, basically living life normally down there. Yeah. You know, even though they're incarcerated like that. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, and I'm not saying that the only solution is, you know, if we all just, you know, stopped buying Mexican pot, mm-hmm. we'd be fine. Or other drugs. You know, it's it's a lot more complicated than that with the corruption and the, you know, other parts of the economy that need help as well. Right. So are you also going to boycott uh, Afghan heroin? Yeah, well, if I can. Oh, Rocky uh, Rocky responded to that. <laughs> hey, Rocky, the drug, the drug dog's here. We're talking drugs over here, Rocky. Can you keep quiet? <laughs> drug dog is here. So do you think we should be boycotting, how about hash well, from that's, Afghanistan? Well, that's, that's the interesting issue because, I mean, here we are, you know, after being so anti-drug as a nation, now we're saying, okay, let them grow their poppies and have the heroin. There. I mean, basically, mm-hmm. it's... It's picking the lesser of two evils. Right. You know, do we want to drive them into the Taliban or into some, you know, other sort of insurgency, or do we want them to be happy poppy farmers? Mm-hmm. Well, but it seems like uh, the Taliban, and, you know, that term is used in the American media to uh, combine a lot of different insurgent groups in exactly, Afghanistan, yeah. uh, that many of them are funding themselves mm-hmm. with uh, either the proceeds from the crops or from transiting them out of the country. Yeah. Definitely. Because, of course, they have more supply line routes than we do. Mm-hmm. Well, that's for sure. That's for sure. They're a little closer to the ground than we are a lot yeah. of times.
So, Mark Fiore, when did you first uh, figure out that you were burdened with too many opinions and you <laughs> needed you needed an outlet for them? It was probably as far back as, you know, high school, let's say. High school was when I first realized or first even heard there was such a thing as a political cartoonist. Mm-hmm. Um, and then since then, I just initially began working for student papers and then gradually freelancing for newspapers once I graduated college, and then mm-hmm. just keeping that up until probably late 90s. I started experimenting with animation from mm-hmm. this you know, weird new program called uh, Flash yeah. that nobody had heard of yet. And, mm-hmm. and actually, even before that, there was a thing called, I think it was called Future Splash or something mm-hmm. like that that had similar... Did you get a grant from the Macromedia Foundation? I did not, no. I'd be happy to take one any time, though, although I guess it'd have to be from Adobe or something. Yeah, they bought Macromedia at some point. (laughs) Yeah, so so the the animation side has been since late 90s. That's when I jumped Mm -hmm. into that and, you know, never... For a while, I tried to do print cartoons and animation. Right. But after a while, you know, after not a very long while, I stopped doing the print work. Mm-hmm. Because the the thought process is just so different. With an animation, you're doing something in a linear way or in a storytelling way. Mm-hmm. Whereas a print political cartoon, you just want you know, boom, that that one punch right. immediately. Yeah. So it's a very different thought process. Mm-hmm. So I went with the uh, longer, more difficult thought process. Now, back in high school, um, did the teacher say, "Fiori, pay attention and stop uh, doodling <laughs> on your notebook"? There, there was a little of that, but I, you know, I, I was a pretty good kid or else a pretty terrified kid. You know, I just didn't want to get in trouble. So I wasn't the kid who was classically, you know, getting his, his fingers whacked by the nun's rulers or something uh-huh. like that. Um, but I did get in a little trouble for the published work, you know, I when see. I was going after the, I mean, you know, initially it was very local, local high school stuff where mm-hmm. I was going after the, uh, you know, physics teacher or something like that, or chemistry teacher, I think was what I actually got in trouble yeah. for. Well, they are evil. They're, they're very <laughs> evil. They're very evil to cartoonists, particularly. So it was, uh, yeah, I wasn't the classic kid who was doing that, although I did sell my first piece in, it wasn't political, but I sold my first piece of work in like third grade to another kid. Really? For five bucks, yeah. Wow. Totally suckered him. So an artist and an entrepreneur, that's not often that's, uh, a combined skills. That's yeah, unfortunately that's what you have to do now. It's you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of tap dancing. You know, yeah. every you know, especially when you're doing stuff on the internet. Mm-hmm. There's so much tap dancing to figure out, okay, what's the next thing? You know, what's you know, and it's not like I really wanna figure out what the next thing is necessarily. It's mm-hmm. you just keep chasing those people, keep chasing those eyeballs and hoping they're gonna find you. Yeah. So walk us through the process. Uh, you have an idea for uh, a, an animation that you're going to create. Do you do yeah. drawings manually, or do you start on a computer? It, well, it's actually the the only thing that I do on the computer initially is, well, it's not only because it takes a huge chunk of time, is, is research. So the initial stage is still all on paper with a pen. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the first, you know, let's say... One quarter of the process, I'm frantically scribbling notes and trying to figure out what angle I'm going to take on a particular subject or mm-hmm. what, what subject I want to go after. So lots of note-taking, and then from that, I get into a storyboard, which is basically just taking the ideas that I have in my head or the, the concept that I'm trying to get across mm-hmm. and breaking it down into a script. And next to that script, I will um, do little thumbnail drawings of mm-hmm. what the scene will look like or, you know, what I want it to look like in mm-hmm. my head. 
And so then when, once that's done, so that's, that whole process is probably like a day's worth of, of effort. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I'll draw the individual elements or components of the animation on a, uh, you know, basically just regular color copy paper or laser paper yeah. with the pencil and then a, actually use a brush. So uh-huh. I, I use a brush tipped in ink. So it's a really? very old-fashioned process combined mm-hmm. with new stuff. So it's, a, it's an animal hair brush. Don't tell the people. <laughs> okay, and then at some point you scan these into, and then they then I'll scan them in and to then, what software? Well, when I scan it, it's just uh, you know just regular scanning software and Photoshop. So these are JPEGs. They'll be they're mm. actually picked for okay. some reason. I don't know whether this has changed in newer versions of, uh-huh. of Flash, but I've just found that picks work better for me. Mm-hmm. And then I'll bring it into Flash and break up all those drawings. So I'll, each one of these animations takes anywhere from say, 15 on the low end to 40 on the high end drawings. Mm-hmm. And then those drawings are scanned in, and I'll convert those to vectors, which this is, I don't want to get too nitty-gritty technical here, but vectors basically are what allows you to create an animation without having it be a huge file size. I see. Or something that's difficult to work with. Mm-hmm. So a vector allows you to... It's almost more sculptural that way. Mm-hmm. So you can grab a part of an arm and, you know, pick it up and move it over there. Right. So it's it's animation, but a lot of what I do is a little more color forms mm-hmm. or, you know, or playing with paper dolls, mm-hmm. you know, where you're essentially taking parts and moving them around and, you know, and drawing. And unfortunately, just given the time pressure, because I try and turn around one of these in two and a half to three days, um, I can't, you know, I can't do full up. Disney style animation, sure. you know, but you do I, make the mouth really move, good. for example. Exactly, the mouth will move, and uh-huh. you know, a character will zip in and out, mm-hmm. or you know, an arm will move, or a kid will smoke a joint, you right. know, like in this example. But each movement is a separate drawing. Each it depends. Each uh, so, like for example, an arm movement. So mm-hmm. you could start with a character like that kid we just saw or heard yeah. on the on the uh, audio side of it, right? His arms were down, and mm-hmm. so there you have a straight drawing of an arm. But mm-hmm. when you want him to pick up a joint, you have you can't just have a straight arm because that's not how you would pick something up. You bend your arm to pick it up towards your face. Uh-huh. So that's a few drawings. So it's a drawing of you know straight arm, bent arm, then more bent arm, right. and then arm holding something. Mm-hmm. So and then when you zip those together. It looks like oh his arm just moved right so there's a lot and and people tend to rely too much on the computer initially where mm-hmm. they think oh I'll just do the first drawing and the last drawing and it'll do everything in between yeah but it doesn't really do that mm-hmm. so it's and I'm I'm continually amazed at what the human eye will fill in mm-hmm. and you don't have to draw mm-hmm. that was one of the first things I learned when I started to do animation I was animating a, a rock or a bullet or something going across the screen. And or across the the scene, and initially I did it in lots of different places, thinking, oh well, the bullet or the rock travels from point A to point B, but you have to show it in all these other points. Mm-hmm. And then you just ended up with a really slow rock that looked really <laughs> lame. And then I just did it basically at point A and point B, mm-hmm. and it was a quick rock. Yeah, you know, and it's and it's amazing. Your your eye just knows, oh, it must have passed those places in between. Right. And so you, it's weird when you start to to animate this kind of work, you you start to look at things differently. Well, you use illusion. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Or, or you realize that you can only see so much. Mm-hmm. Like to, I always give the example of uh, soon after I started doing this work, I crashed my bike. I was, you know, riding around like a, an idiot in San Francisco and I clipped the mirror of a car 
and went head over heels and you know so anyway after the crash when i was on the ground i realized wait what i saw was i didn't see the whole thing i didn't see myself flying through and what i was looking at i saw the the handlebar hitting the mirror I saw myself in midair looking down at my bike, mm-hmm. and then the next thing I saw was my glasses squishing on the pavement. And it, you know, and so you know, there's a lot that went on in between there. Yeah, but it's just boom. Your your eye and brain only work so fast. Mm-hmm. So you don't send any of this to Korea for uh, low cost. Oh, uh, I wish. <laughs> see, you know, uh, cell by cell animation. We should, maybe we should send it to Mexico instead. <laughs> All right, let's load another one here. Uh, and uh, the my question for you is: This is loading. Mm-hmm. Do you have? Where's there's the pause? There you go. Yeah. Do you have um, a catalog of characters or faces uh, that you've already used, and you say, "Well, I'm going to pull uh, Dog Boy, Mr. Dan, out today." Yes, exactly. Well, it's not a full catalog. I I want to make it a little more complete, just because I keep you know beating myself into the ground trying to do new stuff every single week. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still going to be new, but you know, you look at Bugs Bunny, Roadrunner stuff. You know, they have a cast of characters, right? And so I'm, uh, you know, the the new thing, the thing to watch for in my work is probably more characters, more. Uh, ongoing storylines, mm-hmm. but still weaving in the political material like I would every week. So, yeah, Dog Boy and Mr. Dan is a good example of ongoing characters who, you know, I've I've enjoyed working with, and, you know, I think they've enjoyed working with me. But, uh, <laughs> but then other They've never stuff, sued you for sexual so, harassment? Yeah, so, far, so far, so good. <laughs> Although I'm not sure what what's up with Dog Boy. He's a little ambiguous. Uh-huh. But, um... There, you know, then other things like, you know, ground or trees or, mm-hmm. you know, a trash can. You know, there's certain elements like that that right. I'll, I'll pull from the archives. But mm-hmm. I, Well, and some of the standard, uh, you know, you did a lot on Bush and now mm-hmm. Obama is a regular recurring figure. Yeah. Things so change. So do you have them kind of pre-drawn and you just pull them out? I, I do, but I, I try and be careful about that. Like, I, I think of Bush as the example. When I first started drawing George Bush... He, you know, my caricature was very, very different than he turned into by the end of his term mm-hmm. or terms. Um, when he, when I first started drawing him, I didn't even have eyes. He was, he just had these little slits, like little squinty, squinty eyes. Yeah. So he didn't actually have eyeballs or anything. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, which, which worked for several cartoons or, you know, maybe even more. But then, you know, you can't get that much expression from a character or from, you know, and, and also Bush, you do see his eyes eventually. Yeah. But, um, you know, so so that caricature evolved. And mm-hmm. Obama has evolved. Like my first Obama caricature was a lot different and kind of more straight ahead than he's evolved into now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I try and reuse, but for caricatures especially, I'll try and redraw them once in a while. Yeah. Because you see different things or they develop into different mm-hmm. ca- caricatures for yourself too. Yeah. And uh, where do you draw the line with political correctness? Because uh, Obama's ears are big. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yep. And so do you exaggerate them, or do you kind of go with uh, what God gave him, or how, oh, how do you handle that? Oh, I exaggerate those, for sure. <laughs> His ears, I exaggerate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, someone gives you ears, you know, because ears cut cut across all racial lines and barriers, and uh-huh. sexual barriers and all that. So mm-hmm. it's... Uh, I mean, the, the funny rule of thumb, although this is changing on Pelosi, it's always harder to caricature a, a woman than it is a man. Uh-huh. For some reason, you know, partly because when you start to really go extreme and caricature a woman mm-hmm. harshly, 
she'll start to look like a man. You yeah. know, like think of caricatures you've seen of Margaret Thatcher or something. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Pelosi, you know, I went kind of more straight ahead, mm-hmm. representational initially, but now it's like, you know, you look at her and her, I mean, her eyes, you know, and her mouth. I mean, she's very, for for a woman, she has some very good targets to caricature. Right. You know, that pulled back smile and mouth and the pulled back eyes. Well, it's the post-op. Yeah, the eyes that don't seem to close. It's great. (laughs) It's great. Well, there are some scenes, too, where um, she appears to have two or maybe three sets of eyebrows. Yes, exactly. And it's an illusion due to the plastic surgery. And sorry, Nancy, you probably don't want us to talk about I, I this. Know, but... <laughs> Thank you for pushing through health care, but uh, <laughs> you have a funny face. Yeah. <laughs> well, we were talking about ears a minute ago, and mm-hmm. I've never hear, heard Stephen Colbert acknowledge that his ears don't match. Actually, that's a very good point. He has that one that sticks out all pointy. Yeah, and yeah. the other one is, is quite recessed and, yeah. and snug against the side of his head. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for a guy on television, it's pretty noticeable. It is. But I have never heard him comment on it or even make a joke about it. It's true. I, when I first saw it, I thought he had, you know, what one of the, the earpieces in because mm-hmm. he was doing a show or something. Right. But then, yeah, it's just, it's out there all the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure, you know, the, the hardest thing to do is caricature yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's I've done that a little bit. Unfortunately, as I've aged, my nose has gotten bigger and bigger, so <laughs> it makes it a little easier. Well, self-portraits have always been uh, dicey. <laughs> yeah. All right, Dog Boy and Mr. Dan in Parts and Parcels. Let's listen. Okay, now where'd you get that jingle? Oh, I will... Um, Oh, good. You paused it. Yeah. The jingle, I uh, I hired someone who I've done voice work with before, mm-hmm. or who has done voice work with me, and she it's basically one person, you know, and she overlaid that. She does this great kind it's of terrific. retro 50s style. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. That's, an, that's an example of once in a while, I'll, I'll put a little more effort into something that mm-hmm. I can reuse, because that's now, you know, that's their theme song. Right. So And I didn't want to make it too long, just a mm-hmm. quick boom. It's very effective. Yeah. I hope you're happy, dog boy. I'm always happy, Mr. Dan. Thanks for asking. No! Happy because you socialist organ harvesters push through the health care bill. Oh, Mr. Dan, that's wonderful. 32 million uninsured people will now have health coverage. What did you say about organ harvesting? Your Obamacare tyranny has begun. You mean the part about putting a stop to denying sick children health coverage? No, I don't know about that. I'm talking about freedom-killing, death-panel-loving totalitarianism. You mean the part of the bill that makes it so you can't cancel someone's insurance if they get sick? No, dog boy. I'm talking about the part where Pelosi, Reed, and Obama create a government-run axis of socialist evil state. Oh, I must have missed that part, Mr. Dan. Where is it? I don't know, dog boy. It's in the bill somewhere. Probably in the part mandating abortions for teens and organ part sales. <laughs> but, but, Mr. Dan, all I can find is the part where the deficit is reduced by $143 billion. Where's the organ parts part? Keep looking. It must be in the part about organ parts, breast implants for illegal aliens, and martial law. Which part? Where? Martial law! <laughs> organ parts! The expanded prescription drug benefits for the elderly part? No, I mean 
seen the part about death panels and tyranny. What part? Which part? Where's the part about parts? <laughs> the vile, evil, un-American dictator part, dog boy. Blood pressure, Mr. Dan. The part that makes me so furious, I... Careful, Mr. Dan. The part that kills freedom. No, no, Mr. Dan, remember you're... The parts that... <laughs> Organ parts. <laughs> You're a tyrant, dog boy. People should go to either my site or your site to see the visuals on yeah. that. There's, uh, Great stuff. Uh, Obama does have big ears when you show him. He, he, yes, he does. That's and sometimes, the evil character. Sometimes long octopus tentacles to yeah. strangling America. And those little uh, tank-like things that went by with huge <laughs> syringes on them? Yeah. That's diabolical. Those were, those were fun to make. Yeah. There's a, yeah, there's, I mean, the, the, the tea baggers, or tea party people, I should say. It's okay uh, here. <laughs> yeah, by the way, I we I, I do know that one of our listeners mm -hmm. is, because uh, he's on my email list to get our occasional newsletters, oh, nice. is info at teapartysouth.com. Oh, com. nice. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, that's they. Well, anyway, the, I mean, people like that. I mean, I assume, and people that are, uh, you know, ranting and raving about socialism and death panels and all of that. Mm -hmm. They do give a cartoonist amazing imagery to work with. Yeah, you know, yeah. You, you get great stuff. You know, I mean, they've brought back all of the communist imagery. You know, you can do some great work with that. <laughs> well, some of those uh, uh, real blowhard Republicans during the final stages of. Uh, passage as mm -hmm. they were doing everything they could to block yeah. would start sputtering about Stalin and Trotsky and great. bring in all of these figures and it's very clear they didn't have a clue who they were yeah. or what they stood for mm -hmm. or you know even you know that there's any connection whatsoever yep. between communism and what we're doing here today <laughs> which which is forcing people to give uh, health insurance companies more money <laughs> now, uh, did you support the ultimate bill, or is, it just, mean, it, is it just fodder to you? Oh, no, 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 no. I definitely, I mean, and that's why I, I did a lot over the last month or two, a lot of cartoons on, on health care reform and that kind of stuff. But, mm -hmm. you know, mainly because it is good fodder, but also because I think it's really something that's needed, and this yeah. is a big deal, and it's an important thing. And, you know, there's going to be tons of things in the bill that aren't right and that need to be changed down the road or mm -hmm. that, you know, people are going to, you know, come back at me and say, you idiot, why did you support something that does this? You know, of course there's going to be that, but I think overall it sure is better than what we were going with. Yeah. See, for me, the only good part about it is that the Republicans didn't win. <laughs> yeah, but which is always good. Because it has cemented uh, control of health insurance with the for-profit companies. Yeah. And my biggest concern politically is that while I don't think that this repeal bullshit will go anywhere, yeah, um, I think the mandates mm -hmm. are uh, things that that's the issue that Republicans will beat Democrats with because yeah. they will strike fear into people. Uh, it's certainly hyped and overblown, mm -hmm. but the basic idea that you can force me to buy health insurance uh, rubs a lot of people the wrong way. And the biggest issue there is not that the government is requiring me to do it. Mm -hmm. It's that I have to buy it from a for-profit company that's going to gouge me. Yeah. Which and is there's, there's very little in this bill that will uh, keep the costs from going up uh, at mm -hmm. uh, 10, 20, 
even 40% a year, which we're seeing right now. So what do you, I mean, the, I guess the thing that always pops into my mind when people complain about the mandate, because, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, it's really frustrating and annoying that you, I mean, this is essentially giving a whole new slew of customers to the mm -hmm. health insurance world um, or to, you know, private health insurance. But, um, I mean, on the other hand, you look at, uh, you look at the fact that we're forced, you know, here in California and all mm -hmm. over the country, we're forced to have car insurance. Right. I mean, and we, you, you we can't, can't buy it from a public option yeah, or no the government. Yeah, there's no public option for car insurance. <laughs> and of course, you know, the, the, the alternative argument to that is like, you know, well, do you want to make health insurance like the DMV? You know, you mm -hmm. heard that. Yes. Like, well, actually, the DMV is pretty damn efficient. Do you want to know something? I don't something? want to stand in line there. but Even yeah. with Arnold's furloughs, yeah. I recently uh, renewed my driver's license mm -hmm. online, mm -hmm. and the new license arrived three days later. Wow. I That's was impressive. shocked. That's yes. impressive. I actually think I have to make a confession right now yeah. as far as the DMV. Yeah. I have uh, received paperwork from the DMV over the years that's officially called me a scofflaw. For? Parking tickets. Oh. Yeah, which yeah. I've since, uh, you know, made up and, mm -hmm. you know, have funded lots of uh, good public <laughs> service work in San Francisco. Well, just so you don't feel alone, uh, I left Chicago with a huge stack of parking <laughs> tickets unpaid, nice. and uh, the statute of limitations has run out. Yeah. Oh, that's good. <laughs> they, See, that's what I was hoping for. And there's no reciprocity on yeah. parking tickets. So, so they can't uh, get you. Yeah. Statute so of limitations. Just keep you're, moving. You're safe. You're definitely <laughs> safe on that. But the th as far as the, the health insurance, you know, being forced to buy it and the mandates and all of that... Um, it's it's interesting that part of the bill or the the companion bill to the uh, you know final health insurance bill was the whole thing basically pulling student loans away from the banks mm -hmm. you know it's almost like well why skip that intermediate step you yeah. know and this is i'm sure what's really going to drive the republicans nuts too mm -hmm. it's like well see told you yeah. told you they wanted to just go g directly to a government program mm -hmm. and it's like you know it's there's definitely something to be said for that or at least a public option yeah. you know at least if you're forced to buy it Let's buy it somewhere that is not some gigantic health conglomerate that's trying to make a profit off of you. Well, and when you look at the system, the biggest uh, profit-taking that occurs is at the insurance level. Yeah. There is some profit-taking in the for-profit mm -hmm. delivery of health care itself. Sure. Uh, but most of that is within reasonable ranges. Mm -hmm. uh, and <clears throat> while doctors continue to get pretty well paid mm -hmm. in our country... Uh, you know, the idea that a guy who runs a health insurance conglomerate mm -hmm. gets, uh, you know, $18 million a year plus bonuses, yeah, it's, crazy. it's pretty obscene. Oh, it's nuts. I mean, that's the thing that is, has been very fascinating and maddening at the same time about this whole discussion of health insurance. It's like there's a lot of issues on the, you know, quote, Tea Party or Republican side mm -hmm. that I agree with and that I am afraid of. You know, like we've just been talking about, yeah. the whole mandate side. But at the same time, the immediate thing a lot of those people go to is the socialism, the, you know, Trotsky, you know, Stalin, Lenin. You know, they, they just mm -hmm. go so extreme yeah. that, you know, I mean, obviously for a cartoonist, that's great. Mm -hmm. But, you know, for civil discourse, that sure has messed some things up. Uh, do you watch Glenn Beck? For, uh, enter for entertainment value? Occasionally. Occasionally. Very uh, occasionally. <laughs> you know, I, I have, I've seen clips of him, mm -hmm. but I actually don't know when he's on. Yeah. And I don't TiVo him. 
and I have never sat through uh, an entire episode of Glenn Beck or Oprah, just uh, so I can be even-handed. Here. I think, you know, honestly, probably the majority of the places that I've seen him has been on The Daily Show. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I've, well, in this cartoon that you've got queued up there, he, he makes a quick appearance, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, you can, I mean, they rerun his show, so you can always catch it late, late night, too. Yeah. So you can probably find it, although you think you have to go on Fox. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I programmed the, the V-chip to uh, try to reduce that. Okay, so up next we have News in a Nutshell. News in a Nutshell. I said that. From coast to coast, the march of the ungay continues. In New York, Congressman Massa opposes gay marriage while supporting... Tickling and groping. In California, State Senator Roy Ashburn, after years of voting against gay civil rights, revealed to the world that he was, in fact, gay. Right-wing Roy wasn't the first to spend the better part of a career proving how ungay he was. From toe-tapping tough guy Larry Craig to family values Foley, many politicians appeared to have taken a hypocritical oath. But now the jig is up. People realize the more stridently family values the politicians the more likely he is to be gay. So politicians everywhere and of all preferences adapted. In order to prove their tough, red-blooded American heterosexuality, they began to sponsor loads of gay-friendly legislation. John Boehner proposed a redecorating tax credit for homosexual couples with tanning bed exemption. (laughs) Mitch McConnell sponsored a gay marriage and four week honeymoon leave bill. Pundits got in the act too with crazed bulldog Glenn Beck pushing for a Harvey Milk holiday and a do-ask, do-tell military recruitment drive. In front of the chalkboard. Biden began to publicly hold hands, showing the world how comfortable they are with their sexuality. Political positions changed. The definition of family values was expanded. People of all preferences were given equality and the world did not end. <laughs> so on that uh, that cartoon and the one that you showed, the dog boy and Mr. Dan, right. the voice on that is uh, this guy that I've been working for, with for a while, John Taylor. He's great. He does great stuff. Yeah. A, in, I think, I'm pretty sure his site is johntaylorzone.com or something. All right. He would be, and he's done uh, radio work in the past mm-hmm. as well. He'd be a good guy to check out one of these days, too. Uh, this came to me over the internets from Unknown uh, Origin. This station presents Real American Heroes. Real American Heroes. Today, we salute you, Mr. Closeted Conservative Congressman. Mr. Closeted Conservative Congressman. Most people go to the airport bathroom to relieve themselves before their next flight. But not you, no. You're looking to become a member of the Ground Level Club. Not what they mean by a layover. You, Mr. Closeted Conservative Congressman, voted against gay marriage. That's because you want to have as many partners as you can, in as many cans as you can. A romantic toilet rendezvous. Come on, sir. You are gay, aren't you? That's not what I said on C-SPAN, no. So the next time you're in the airport lavatory stall and see a polished wingtip tap, tap, tapping to make your acquaintance, run away, or you might be the belle of the bathroom ball with Mr. Closeted Conservative Congressman, a real American hero. Mr. Closeted Conservative Congressman. Now, Beautiful. The, this was stolen from somewhere. There is mm-hmm. a bad movie, and I'm bad at remembering movies, but it was on late night on TV one time. And it's uh, something from the 90s where this uh-huh. this theme 
the 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 frame of it was stolen. Oh, that oh, interesting. Do you, do you know what it is? I, it doesn't ring a bell. Yeah, it doesn't, I I love it though. Yeah, I love the little callouts to there. You know, it's beautiful stuff. Yeah, <laughs> that's not what you said and on C-SPAN. <laughs> I mean, it's, this whole thing with between between issues like that, where you know you do have uh, you know, like I say, the the ungay, you know, people who are really anti-gay in their legislation and policy, but then they're gay behind the scenes. It it kind of makes me wonder if they're attracted to that. And this could get us into a whole discussion about the Catholic Church and the priesthood and that kind of thing, too. But Well, it, as we're speaking, it's April Fool's Day. We're heading into <laughs> Easter weekend. And um, do you think that this pope can be redeemed? <laughs> oh, God, I don't know. I don't know. I think he had a tough road from the start with the whole, you know, Hitler Youth thing. But, uh, yeah. you know, it's, I mean, it, unless he, I mean, basically, I'd chuck him. There's my short answer. Yeah. But I don't I doubt that's going to happen, you know, unless it just gets closer and closer and closer, but they sure are. I mean, I should do more cartoons on the Catholic Church, but I mm-hmm. thought I'd wait at least till after Easter. Yeah. And then I then I do it. But it's just it's just ridiculous. I well, mean, and, just... and the layers of it are interesting because um the Inquisition led to the creation in the Vatican. Mm-hmm. of the office that Ratzinger, uh, Pope mm-hmm. Benedict, held yeah. before uh, he became Pope. Mm-hmm. And he replaced himself as essentially the sheriff of Vatican City, yep. is the former Archbishop of San Francisco, now Cardinal oh, that's right. Levada. That's right. And he took a really hard line on, on gay issues when mm-hmm. he uh, came to San Francisco, made a few exceptions uh, with Catholic charities working with AIDS patients, but mm-hmm. beyond that... Uh, was, you know, pretty much, uh, you're a sinner, uh, go yep. away kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And so kind of the way, you know, Alberto Gonzalez <laughs> <True>. <laughs> kept Bush and Cheney uh, in office, we've got uh, Leveda, the American cardinal, yep. who is going to use every available means to protect uh, his buddy, the Pope. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's just, it still just boggles my mind that, that you could leave someone who's molesting kids and... Sure, I understand forgiveness and everything like that, but you know, you still have to do some time or, or you know, actually face civil penalties and criminal penalties. Well, you know, it's, three it's Hail crazy. Marys. Yeah. I mean, you got to start there. <laughs> no, you start. Th- you can do those <laughs> while you're locked up. It's just, it just drives me nuts. Yeah, and it's, and it's all the only thing it's going to do is just going to drive more people away from the Catholic Church too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's just going to make it just more of a outcast almost, you know, right. where it's, it's just, I mean, it's already the butt of so many jokes, some from me, but mm-hmm. you know, it's just crazy. Yeah. It's, it's sad to see that happen. And, uh, Maureen Dowd had a piece in the New York times, which was pretty good. I mean, she, she picks up the thing with the Catholic church quite a bit. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, she was saying this wouldn't happen if you had nuns in there, right? which, you know, is probably true. But I mean, I think a lot of this, this gets us back to Larry Craig and closeted congressman, mm-hmm. um, they're closeted anti-gay gay congressman. Yeah, um, I think a lot of people are drawn there, thinking that oh well, if I'm a really hardcore conservative congressman, this feeling I have will go away. Mm-hmm. Or if I if I join the church and become a priest, oh, it's celibacy. So well, then I won't have these weird feelings. Yeah, you know, it's just I think it's a it's a terrible mess, and I think. Allowing priests to marry would have a, a big impact on improving things. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the whole system is riddled with, uh, 
inconsistencies and hypocrisy. Yeah, you think? And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's very hard to rationalize. I, uh, I'm no longer practicing as a Catholic, but mm-hmm. I was raised that way, and uh, the Jesuits mm-hmm. tried to pound a lot of uh, yeah. fear and faith into me, and mm-hmm. uh, it didn't really work. Yeah. And uh, have you ever been to Vatican City? I haven't, no. It's surreal. Mm-hmm. Because it is stunning. I it's, mean, it yeah. is a beautiful uh, architecture, and you know you have to overlook that uh, slaves or other mm-hmm. uh, people who may not have had a choice were yep. there building this mm-hmm. uh, for the greater glory of God. Uh, but when you take the tour that uh, ultimately leads you to the Sistine Chapel, mm-hmm. and you see some of the you know most impressive artwork known to man. And you see all this uh, gilded, uh, you know, a lot of gold and a lot of uh, very elaborate and expensive um, decorations. Mm -hmm. And you think, well, you know, what was the church supposed to do? Build an earthly (laughs) kingdom? Yeah. Or I thought there was this thing about the the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's true. And uh, so the the contradictions are evident uh, uh, on many levels. And yet, uh, I I guess I've been to the Vatican three or four times, and you go through with these groups of Mm -hmm. very devout people, Mm -hmm. and it's it's almost as challenging to me now as the airport, you know, where you can't uh, pipe up with a joke. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they they beat you with their purses. You know, nobody uh, appears to question. Mm-hmm. the obvious contradictions that are presented. Mm-hmm. And you you see the Catholic Church as holding perhaps the uh, largest real estate empire in the mm-hmm. free world, uh, including, you know, most of the commercial property in downtown Chicago mm-hmm. is on land owned by the archdiocese. Oh, is that right? Yeah, department mm-hmm. stores, and, mm-hmm. and they have tax-exempt status mm-hmm. uh, because they're a religious organization. Yep. And these things all add up to me to uh, just to dismiss mm-hmm. the the structure of the church. Uh, I think Jesus was a great guy who had a very important uh, philosophical message mm-hmm. and offers us a, a good set of standards to live by. But the church that claims him as their uh, inspiration and uh, focus is is so corrupt. Well, I think it I think it's a, the age-old thing where it starts out with great ideas and there's a lot of good good stuff there, but then people come in and screw it up, you know? <laughs> I think there's a little bit of that. I mean, mm-hmm. the pope is infallible. It's like, "Well, I don't think he's infallible. I think he's he's had some uh, faults in there." Well, you know, just to be clear, the infallibility was only claimed uh starting in 1860 by Pius the 9th or 10th. Mhm. Um I think it was the 10th. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I get my piouses mixed up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there were a few. And it is only under certain circumstances when the Pope is speaking ex cathedra. That's the term they That's apply. That's the only time that he... So when he's defending himself from covering up sexual scandals, mm-hmm. he's not infallible. He's, okay, good. And he doesn't good. claim it. Well, that was close. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was close. <laughs> oh, man. But I do wonder sometimes, you know, if he clicked those... Uh, Gucci loafers mm-hmm. three times mm-hmm. where he would go <laughs> <laughs> to the Minneapolis airport. Maybe you never know. 
know. Well, Mark, thanks for stopping by today. Anytime. It's, it's, it's fun, fun to uh, watch your cartoons, and people should see your animation, your animated political cartoons. Do you, do you have a specific name for these? You call them animations mostly, right? You know, I used to right? call them animated political cartoons, but lately, for some reason, maybe because it's shorter, I've just been calling them political animation. Okay. Political animation. And they're available at markfiore.com, F-I-O-R-E. And also, um, I'm going to take this opportunity to update the collection of your, your animations, your cartoons, mm-hmm. that are on the homepage at peterbcollins.com. And uh, are you a fan of Roy Rogers? Oh, yeah. Happy Same trails, up. Mark. Thank you. Thanks for Same listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. Your emails are welcome, so send them. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails.